Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn me to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 23 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read this scene from the life of David in 1 Samuel chapter 23. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, uh, you're welcome to use the one in the pew ahead of you. You can uh, use that this morning. If you don't have a Bible at all, you can take that home with you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word in your possession if you don't have it. Um, Please feel free to take that one that's there. Again, I would like to greet those who are downstairs. Uh, Thank you for uh, helping clear some space up here. It seems odd. It seems almost empty. It's not. It's not at all. If you look from the back, it's hard to find a place. Uh, but um, we're uh, thank you for your participation in that. Now, First Samuel chapter 23, we're going to start reading in verse 1. All right, let's begin there. When David was told, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Cala and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, Go, attack the Philistines and save Kela. But David's men said to him, here in Judah, we're afraid. How much more then if we go to Cala against the Philistine forces? Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Cala, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hands. So David and his men went to Cala, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy blows on the Philistines and saved the people of Cala. Now Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with David with him when he fled to David at Cala. Saul was told that David had gone to Cala, and he said, God has delivered him into my hands, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Cala to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod. David said, Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Cala and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Cala surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. Again, David asked him, will the citizens of Cala surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. The ingrates. That's in the Hebrew. Verse 13, so David and his men went about, about 600 in number, left Cala and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Cala, he did not go there. David stayed in the wilderness, strongholds, and in the hills of the desert, desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be his second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh on the hill of Hakilah south of Jeshimon? Now, your majesty, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for giving him into your hands. Saul replied, The Lord bless you for your concern for me. Oh, poor Saul. Go and get more information. Find out where David usually goes and who has seen him there. They tell me he's very crafty. 
Find out about all find out about all the hiding places he uses, then come back to me with definite information. Then I will go to, with you. If he is in the area, I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. So they set out and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Maon, in the, Arab, in the Arabah, south of Jeshimon. Saul and his men began the search, and when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Maon. When Saul heard this, he went from the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That is why they called this place Selah Hamalakot. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Let's pray for a moment this morning, shall we? Lord, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to, your, to you for your mercies to us. Lord, I, I think of the words that the Apostle Paul often wished his readers, grace and peace to you from, the, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray this morning that as we look into your word, you would help us and that we would find grace here. Reminders of your generosity to us. We who are not deserving of your kindness. Uh, there are those who find no strength in themselves for the day that is ahead. There are those who come with worries and troubles, some this morning burdened with shame, discouragement. Lord, we pray that they might find grace from you today and peace, anxiousness. Lord, we are people who are filled with worries and fears. And I pray that you would grant us peace. It's peace that surpasses our understanding. Uh, grant that to us according to your kindness. Lord, this morning we pause just briefly. We think of uh, Joel and Kelly who are leading their first day of children's choir downstairs. Huh. There are two women who need grace and peace. We ask that you would uh, help them to lead joyfully and confidently today. And uh, thank you for the, 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 that they have given themselves over to the discipling of our children to teach them the great worth of your name, that it is worth singing of and celebrating. Grant them joy in that ministry as they conduct it today. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. Well, if nothing else, this week's news has reminded us that we live fragile lives, vulnerable lives. We don't like to admit it. We don't actually like to talk about that very much, uh, but it's true. I remember a few years ago reading a newspaper article, an analysis really about when hurricane warnings come and the call to evacuate comes, uh, why the article was evaluating why people ignore them and why they don't leave the areas. I thought about that article this week uh, when I wondered about uh, Florida. I wonder if more people have left Florida than usual because of all the recent hur uh, pictures of Hurricane Harvey. I suppose Houston made Floridians leave any faster? I, I would guess so. Your life, the way you live, your plans, your schedule, your ideas, they're more fragile than you like to admit that they are. 
Uh, we have destructive weather at home. And if you look abroad, we wonder if North Korea, does, does he really have weapons that pose a danger to us? Hmm. Earlier this week, the Trump administration announced that in six months, this program that has provided some sort of security for 800,000 people who are brought to the United States illegally as children has provided some security for them in the United States. That program is going to come to an end, and they will no longer have a safe status. What happens to them? Do you suppose they're learning this week about the fragility, the vulnerability of their lives, these 800,000 people? It's not supposed to be this way, is that we live in America. We're supposed to have progress, not instability. The problem, though, isn't just in the news, right? We live fragile, vulnerable lives. Sometimes that fragility, that, that vulnerability shows up at your house. Some of you came to church this morning keenly aware of the fact that life is unstable. Your life feels like a Jenga tower, Right? And someone is pulling at that one brick on which everything else rests, and there's a little bit of wobbling and shaking going on. Well, we're in a section of Scripture where David himself is vulnerable. Perhaps he's more vulnerable than he has ever been yet. And in fact, it's not as clear in the English, but the author uses words to describe where David is. He's in the wilderness. He's in the desert. He's in a wasteland. He's in a forest. Not a beautiful, happy forest, but a dark forbidding forest. He is as isolated as possible and he is uh, uh, threatened by danger. And what is worse, as we read this story, we remember God put him here in the wilderness. He's here because this is where God told him to go. So strange to me. That's the way, uh, see, chapter 23 just starts with him there. Chapter 21 had ended. Actually, it's in chapter 22. The last time we were with David, Gad the prophet came to him and said, David, you've got to leave. You've got to go to Judah. Go out into the wilderness, David. This is where God wants you to be. Strange. In this chapter of Samuel, the author wants to accomplish two things. First thing he wants to do is he wants us to see the comparison, actually the contrast, between Saul and David and how they respond to what God is doing and who God is and God's word. So there's a contrast, a deliberate contrast in this passage. If we were going to be literary, we could talk about the fact that Saul is a foil for David. That is, Saul's bad choices make David's good choices much better, appear better by comparison. But the second thing the author wants to do is he wants, us, he wants us to learn, he wants us to see how God cares for David while he's in the wilderness. That's actually going to be our primary focus this morning. What I want you to see is I want to share with you three things that you need to know when you are in the wilderness. When your life feels particularly vulnerable, particularly fragile, it happens to everyone, here's what you need to know. All right. Here's number one. God guides his people. God guides his people. I mention that because vulnerable moments are those times when doubts can flourish. So we need to remember that God has spoken and God does guide his people. And what's unique about this chapter that we just read in Samuel is how much God speaks to David. Did you notice that? God speaks a lot. He tells him what to do. Starts in verse two. Should I go and attack these Philistines? God says, yes. Go. And then then everybody around David is afraid to go. So God asks again, are you sure, God? And God says, yes, go. I've delivered them into your hands. 
we should put this content in the in the context of the book a little bit here. Verses one through six of chapter twenty-three, I believe, are a flashback. That is, they overlap a little bit with what's going on in chapter twenty-two. So maybe verse one of chapter twenty-three should start. Meanwhile, why is that important? In chapter 22, Saul is in pursuit of David and he goes to Nob and he kills priests. Saul kills God's priests. Meanwhile, David is saving God's people. See the difference between those two? Now, the reason I think this is a flashback is because at the end of chapter 22 is when Abiathar the priest joins David and then it's mentioned again at verse 6 that Abiathar has come. Meanwhile, contrast between these two men. Saul and Jonathan. Saul is about the business of, of killing um, God's people, priests. David is in the process of rescuing them. Uh, David is, 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 um, he is joining here in the company of the great deliverers of the Old Testament. This is what happens when, when God's deliverers hear about God's people being in trouble. They act. They want to know, should I go? Should I go? This is like uh, David is being like Ehud or Othniel or even at times uh, Joshua, Caleb, uh, uh, Samson even. And, and verse 4, God says to David, go, I'm going to hand them, give the Philistines into your hands. It's good to see this here, David getting ready to go. It seems like David's got a little bit of his mojo back here, a little bit. Last time we were with David, he was running and he was afraid. And here he's, should I go? Should I go? Should I go, God? And God tells him to go and he goes. Actually, this reminds me a little bit of of what happened with uh, another Philistine. In 1 Samuel 17, all the Israelites are afraid. They're cowering before the Philistine giant Goliath. And David's ready to go. And here in chapter 23, the men around him are afraid of the Philistines. And David is ready to go. It's good to see this. There may be better places in the text to draw this out, but this actually, this scene reminds me a little bit of the Lord Jesus. Before he was arrested and crucified, he told his followers, he said to all of them, you are going to be afraid and you're going to run away. Peter says, not me. <laughs> that did not work out very well for him, Right? The key theme of the, God, of the book of Samuel is that God shepherds his people through his anointed king. That's what God does. He shepherds his people through his anointed king. What kind of king, what kind of savior do we need? We need a king who doesn't run. Who when everyone else runs away and is afraid, he steps forward. That's the type of king that we who are followers of the Lord Jesus follow. This is the type of king he is. When everybody else is afraid, the Lord Jesus is not. And scenes like this in this story, as we think about David's great son, the Lord Jesus, they prepare us to read Revelation 19 well. Revelation 19, the end of the age, the Lord Jesus comes from heaven riding a white horse. His robe is dipped in blood. His eyes are blazing with fire. He has crowns on his head and he comes to conquer. He comes for war. And, and, and we know he's, he's worthy to do that. He is worthy to leave heaven's armies because when everyone else is afraid, the Lord Jesus stepped forward. This scene reminds me of, of that. God is guiding David, though, here as he goes. 
And then Abiathar comes with this ephod in verse 6. Now, uh, we've talked about this. Um, The context, again, is important. David is in the wilderness, and he has 600 men following him, this little camp. It kind of reminds me of Moses in the wilderness with the Israelites. And, And Moses and the Israelites were in the wilderness, and God was present with them. How was God present with them? Well, his symbol, this Ark of the Covenant, the box, was with them too. God was with them in the wilderness. And now Abiathar goes out there, and he has the ephod with him. It's not the Ark of the Covenant, but it's kind of a symbol of God's presence, and he joins David in the wilderness. So we had Moses in the wilderness with the Israelites and God, and, and David's now in the wilderness, and, and, and God, as it were, is coming to join him through Abiathar in the wilderness with the ephod. And, and the ephod is there to guide him. We know that because verse 9 says, when, when David has to make a decision, he says to the priest, bring the ephod. Now, as best as we can tell, it's, we don't have as much detail as we want about this. The ephod was some sort of robe or uh, garment of some kind with pockets in it. I don't think it was a hoodie, but, you know, it, it had pockets. And, and uh, he, when you want to know something from the priest, you go in and you ask, should I do this or that? And inside a pocket of the ephod was, were two stones, the Urim and the Thummim. And, and the priest would reach in and he'd pull out one of the stones and the color of the stone would indicate the answer to the question that you were asking. We think that's how it worked. What's clear though in here is this, that God is speaking to David. Verse 11, will the citizens of Cala surrender me to him? Uh, will Saul chase me? He will. Will they deliver me? They will. God's guiding David. I even think that the arrival of Jonathan to him is an example of God guiding or helping David. Um, It's a wonderful scene. If you you want to be a good friend, you should meditate on this scene. It starts in verse 15. It's a little funny. (laughs) David's in Horash hiding, and Saul with his whole army is looking for him. He can't find him. He's wandering around trying to find him. And, And Jonathan, who's by himself and not with Saul's army, just sneaks in all by himself and meets with David. The text says, he strengthened, he helped him find strength in God. Don't you want that to be true of your life, that this is what you do for your friends? He helped him find strength in God. That that's what you bring to your growth group. You help them find strength in God. Now, how does Jonathan do it? Jonathan does it by reminding David of what God has said the promises that he's made. You will be king over Israel. And everybody knows it, David. This is what God has said. Don't be afraid because God's going to keep his promises to you. Remember what he has said. I don't know how God spoke to David in the first six verses before Abiathar arrived. I don't know that. I do know, though, eventually he got the ephod and then God sends Jonathan. God guides his people. That's what he's doing. This is important to remember in the wilderness. Because it's often in the wilderness that you are most conscious of your need to receive God's guidance and when you are most hungry for it. Actually, I realize that there are two different groups of people that I'm talking to this morning. Some of you in in the wilderness, you are the determined people. You're going to fix it. 
You're going to solve your problems. You know what you do when you get in the wilderness in a tight spot? You make a plan and you fix it. And you are bound and determined to fix it because that's what you do. Some of you, you wilt. Right? You feel like you're in the desert, you're in the wilderness, and you become despondent and, and, and you despair. Both of you need to remember that God guides his people in the wilderness. He speaks and he helps us. Sometimes if you're so, de- you're so determined that you don't have room to listen, and sometimes you're, you're in despondency so much that you don't have ears that are open to listen. God guides his people. He has always guided his people. It's a recurring theme in the Bible, as a matter of fact. Bill Arnold writes about this. Listen to this paragraph from him. The need for divine guidance is an undeniable link between believers of Bible times and today. Indeed, the Bible has much to say about receiving and acting on divine guidance. The ancestral narratives of Genesis have many examples of hearing and receiving messages from God, from Abram's original call to Jacob's stairway dream. Though we can never be quite certain of the exact means of God's communication to Abraham, how did he give him these promises? We don't know. We know that his promises became central in the Abrahamic story and indeed the story of Genesis. There were many subsequent occasions when God repeated these promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God speaks, God guides over and over and over in the Bible. Even when we are not certain of how that voice of God was communicated, it is clear that God provided guidance and protection for his people. With the provision of Moses in the Sinai covenant, God continued to offer guidance, whether through a burning bush, pillars of cloud and fire, or a theophany complete with thunder and lightning and trumpet blast. God was clearly guiding his people. The covenant itself came complete with a written word from God, which includes the Ten Commandments and many applications of the law. This written expression of God's will quickly became the primary means by which God communicated with his people. Bill Arnold touches here on one of the issues that we have. What means does God use to guide his people? And, and some of you, aren't there moments, I know I've had these moments, when I wish that the Urim and the Thummim were still around? Right? Don't you wish that? Um, you can pass them on from pastor to pastor in this church, and you can come on Sunday, and you come to me and say, hey, uh, I've got a question. Can you, can you ask God? Sure. What's your question? Should I start this business? Yes. Should I marry this girl? No. Right? You know? Do you wish you had a stone that could tell you these things? Do you remember magic eight balls? We were warned in Sunday school that magic eight balls were witchcraft, I think, so we couldn't have one in our house. But friends brought them to school, and you're supposed to shake up the ball and ask it a question, and and a little triangle would appear at the top with, with an answer to your question. When I argue that God guides his people, some of you, you're frustrated not because you don't believe it, but because you're frustrated that you do believe it, but his guidance just does not seem very clear or very specific or timely. But part of our confidence in God's guidance is not just the fact that he does guide, but that he actually has given us what we need to follow him. John Stott said, God speaks through what he has spoken. This is the pattern in the Bible. As the Bible unfolds the story, God's 
God's people rely less and less on miraculous signs and on dreams and on experiences and wonders and more and more on what he has already written down. You don't need the Urim and the Thummim because you have the Bible. You don't need a magic eight ball because you have the Bible. And it's much better. Do you believe that? Our confidence is that what drives us to scriptures. Will you obey what you can understand here, even if you have not yet found out all the answers to all the questions at once? Obey what you can. Along the way, more and more of your questions will find resolution. God guides his people. It's what he does in the wilderness. Now here's the second thing you need to know in the wilderness It is easy to be self-deceived. Well, here's the danger. God does guide us, but it's very easy to be self-deceived. Now we're going to talk about Saul for a few minutes. Do you notice how much God talk Saul has in this passage, how much he uses God's name? Verse 7, he says, God has delivered David into my hands. No, he hasn't, Saul. But he's sure God has. And then in verse, uh, let's see, 21, Saul says, The Lord bless you for your mercy to me. It's a blessing from Saul. How much is a blessing from Saul worth? He might as well be handing out fortune cookies, right? I mean, come on, really? He's so blind. Saul is just blind. Remember the contrast with David here. Saul, while Saul rouses himself to hunt down David and to murder priests... David is the one who's rescuing the people. Saul is not concerned about the Philistines. And when the Israelites are rescued by David, Saul doesn't say, oh man, I'm so happy the people of Tela are safe. That's really good news. Saul instead is like, great, I can go get David because he's got to be in that city and it's not a good place to hide. I'm going to kill him. Saul, he thinks God's with him and he's so clearly wrong. We'll come back to this again because it's actually a a major theme of chapter 28. But um, God and Saul are not on speaking terms. God isn't speaking to Saul. uh, Saul doesn't have the ephod. God's not talking to Saul. And Saul is dependent on any rumor he possibly can find. That's verse 22. Go and find out more information for me. You come and tell me what, what's going on, and then, then, I will, then I'll, I'll come and hunt down David. David has the ephod and talks to God. Saul has nothing and talks to the Ziphites and tries to get all the rumors that they have. See, the, the contrast is this text is building between these two people. This reminds me, actually, of the blinding nature of sin. When you choose to disobey God like Saul did, it doesn't solve your problems. It doesn't bring clarity. It doesn't help, but it may fool you into thinking that God is your friend. One of the most common themes in the Bible, the image for for sin, is that it's darkness. God is light. If you walk away from him, you head into darkness. You are not on his side, regardless of how much you use his name. There's no shortage of people in the world who lay claim to God's name. The Bible knows this. I hope you do know, you know this too. Not everyone who names God's name is actually aligned with him. You know that, right? Not everyone who self-identifies as a Christian is actually doing Christ's work or representing him well. 
here in the Bible, we, we read it clearly in this text. This is absolutely what's happening with Saul. Think of the vast amount of abuse that has taken place in God's name. And rather than, than dealing with it or repenting of it, those sins are covered and they're excused. It's not just a problem in the Roman Catholic Church or in Mormonism. It's a problem that we have too. A few weeks ago I read an article in the Atlantic magazine about a sexual predator that was allowed to run rampant in one of evangelicalism's greatest missions agencies. He had a well-known name and he was highly regarded, highly respected, and he was, through his whole 40-year career overseas, abusing children. Nobody did anything about it. The Atlantic is it's a left-leaning magazine. It's, it's no friend of conservative Christianity. It suggests, though, that based on the evidence, the little evidence it has seen, that, that the problem of abuse in evangelical circles may be worse than the problem in Roman Catholic circles. I hope that's not true. Not everyone who uses God's name is aligned with God's purposes and God's plans. It's very easy to be self-deceived. One of the easiest levels, uh, easiest ways on a, a personal level to be s- deceived is to isolate yourself. Notice that in this passage. Saul has no friend here in this chapter who is willing to tell him the truth. Maybe the reason that's true is because Saul tends to throw spears at people who tell him the truth. God had sent at times Samuel and Ahimelech and Jonathan and they tried to talk to him and Saul absolutely refused and he isolated himself and he is deceived into thinking that God is his friend and that God is on his side. This isolation is in part one of the reasons that the New Testament talks to us so much about our talking to each other. Followers of Jesus talk to one another. We talk grace-filled words to one another. We speak the truth in love. We talk and talk and talk. It's part of our church covenant. You cannot be a tight-lipped person and fulfill the church covenant. We talk and talk and talk. Now here's the third thing that you need to know in the wilderness. God provides for his people. God provides for his people. We've already talked about some of the ways that God has provided in this chapter. He delivered the Philistines into David's hands. He provided that way. He sent him uh, Jonathan and Abiathar. That's God providing. When Saul was getting close and surrounding him in a pincer move around a mountain, God sent the Philistines to attack the Israelites and distract him. There's a wonderful example of God's providence. God's working through the Philistines to rescue David. At the end of the chapter, the text mentions En Gedi, a place that's famous for its springs. God is providing for David. That's what he does. He provides. He works to protect and provide for his people. When David was reflecting on this later in Psalm 54, listen to a couple of verses that he wrote about this. Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. You have delivered me from all my troubles. God is our helper and sustainer, and he's our deliverer. That's what he does. This is worth thinking about. This is worth singing about. This is worth a long and sustained meditation. It's what God does. 
Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, who doth prosper thy work and defend thee. Surely his goodness and mercy here daily attend thee. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. Oh, in a minute we're going to sing. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. That's what God does. He protects, he provides. We encourage one another by thinking about this and talking about this. And there are myriad examples in your own life of how God has provided for you. Can I confess something to you this morning? This is probably a sign of my weakness as a cynical person. But I read stories like this, and immediately what comes to my mind is, is people for whom God doesn't seem to have yet provided, or who he hasn't yet protected. The Bible knows those stories too. It's not part of this passage. Actually, I'll issue a warning to our elders. <laughs> our elders are responsible for the teaching of the Bible in our congregation, so they listen with a very careful ear when we open God's word from the pulpit. Here's the message of the text. God provides for his people. Yes, that's worthy of celebration and, and, and exaltation and long meditation. This is what God does. Yes. I'm going to talk about exceptions, not exceptions. Uh, When we spend time in the pulpit trying to quantify God's word or qualify, that's a better word, qualify God's word, that should make our elders nervous. Shouldn't happen that often. But I, I, maybe you're cynical like I am, some of you. And I can think of people who suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer. It's these nagging questions that come to my mind. Maybe this, past, maybe this will help. I have two observations that I want to make just as I finish this morning. God provides and protects so that his purposes will be fulfilled. God provides and protects so that his purposes will be fulfilled. And God has different purposes for different people. I want to think with you about Jonathan for a minute. At the end of 1 Samuel, Jonathan is going to be dead and David is going to be um, is about to become king. Both of them are mighty warriors in the text. Both of them have great faith in God. Both of them are are confident and have done great things. They're both heroes. And at the end of this story here, one of them is dead and one of them is king. How do we think about that? Most commentators, when they come to verse 17, and it says, Jonathan says to David. Don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Most commentators look at that and they say, Jonathan, how can you be such a dolt? He's so naive, they say. Jonathan, do you really think that your relatives, the Benjamites, are going to let you uh, become second in king to David? That that David's going to replace, that there's going to be a new dynasty and you're going to be able to be second in command? Do you really think that? I mean, come on. How How much of an idiot can you be, Jonathan? Except, I read this book and Jonathan is... It's a great man of valor. He's wise, he's brave, he's courageous. He, he's he's uh, crafty. He's not a fool. What, what's going on here? 
What's happening is that Jonathan sees the promises that God has made. God has made a definitive promise about what is going to happen to David. And Jonathan has bought into it completely. Yes, I support this. God has said you're going to be king, and I'm going to work to make you king too. At what great personal cost, isn't it? He's supposed to be king, but no, David, because God said, I believe you're going, to be, you're going to be king, and I'm fully on board. And when he talks about his part in David's reign, he's moving a little bit beyond God's promise, isn't he? He's, he's envisioning something specific that God has not promised, but he has this vision of how he's going to fit into what God has said. Sh- shouldn't we credit his faith and applaud his enthusiasm for God's plan? He's on board with it. I want to be second in command. I went in on what God has promised. But it doesn't work that way, though. Jonathan was wrong about the, the vision that he had of his own role in David's kingdom. He dies with Saul on the battlefield. It's one of the great losses in the Bible. God in his providence has different plans and different purposes for his people. There are broad promises and specific plans. His purposes for you may include remission. Oh, he gives thanks to God. But his plans for you may involve death. God's plans for you may involve prosperity. Your business will flourish. Wonderful. It it may involve filing for bankruptcy. God's plans for you may include childbirth or miscarriage, reconciliation or divorce. I I don't know. But our hope is not in the the specific results of God's plans that we think we know, that we hope for, that we couldn't understand if we tried. Our hope is not in those specifics that we want, but in God's faithfulness to carry us through his purposes. The promises that we hold to is that his purposes will ripen and that they'll be satisfying like sweet summer fruit. Here's a second observation. God's primary purpose is to make his children conform to the image of his son. So if if God has different purposes for people, his, his primary purpose for us all is to make us more like the Lord Jesus. Sometimes he does that with sharp knives and bruising blows. One of my favorite illustrations of this comes from one of my favorite books on prayer. It's called The Praying Life by uh, Paul Miller. Uh, Paul Miller in this book uh, about prayer talks a lot about his daughter, Kim, who uh, was uh, born with a, a pretty severe form of autism. Uh, Kim cannot speak, but she has a voice computer that she uses and um, she types or uh, points to pictures and it communicates for her. He, he talks about how, in this book, a lot about how her struggles with communication remind him about his own struggles with prayer, which is essentially a speaking discipline, right? Well, before Kim was born, Paul Miller's wife, Jill, prayed Psalm 127.1 over her pregnancy. Psalm 127.1, God says, He would keep you from harm. And she prayed, oh God, keep our baby from harm. Keep our baby from harm. She prayed often. And then when Kim arrived with all of her challenges, um, it it looked very much like like God had not heard or God had not answered. 
And it took the Millers a long time to figure it out. But God did, she said, Jill said to her husband one day, you know, God has answered my prayer that I prayed for Kim. But not in the way that, that any of them expected. She said, God has kept us from the harm, not the harm of autism, but the harm of pride and self-righteousness and hurry and worry and fear. Paul says, we've learned so much from parenting Kim, and we can see the fruit of God's work in our lives in, in humility and faith and compassion. You only have that perspective if you realize that your more significant problems do not come from outside of you, what happens to you, but from within you, inside of you. Your most significant problems are embedded deeply into your heart. They go all the way down. You need protection and provision here more than you need protection and provision here. Maybe that's why one of the reasons that the Bible speaks to us about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. If all of our problems were external and could be handled outside of our, your heart, if they were just financial or just sociological or just political or just intellectual, God could easily provide external solutions. But in order to rescue us from what is wrong, inside, he became one of us. He took to himself our nature. He became one of us. That's the only way to solve deep down problems. He became like one of us and experienced what it means to obey God in all sorts of circumstances. He was tempted every single way that you and I are tempted. And he took upon himself all of the darkness that is endemic to our condition as rebels in the world that God made. He had within himself the light of life, but he took into himself our darkness. He died and rose again as our sin bearer and gives life to all who receive it by faith. He became like one of us so that God might work in us so that we might become like him. That's his primary purpose. The purpose towards which his providing and his protecting are aimed. I wonder if you're attuned to that work. I don't know if you can still buy cars like this anymore, but I remember when our cars, when I was growing up, had dials that you had to tune the radio now it's all digital. You push buttons or you, you work your, way, your, button, your, your dial around to the exact number of the radio station. But I remember having to dial those in and you, you might be looking for 610, but it'll look like with that red line that you're actually on 590, but that is actually 610. It was strange. Primitive. So primitive. <laughs> uh, we would drive around and, and I don't know, radio waves have gotten better over the years. I'm not sure if radio receivers have gotten better in cars, but it seems like we would drive around trying to find the station and you'd have to turn it all the time, keep adjusting it constantly. Some of you would drive with one hand on the wheel and one hand on the dial, constantly trying to get the, the radio station in. Um, some of you do that now, the same thing with the speed on your wipers, because you, you can never get the speed exactly right for the exact amount of clearance that you want to have on your windows. Right? You're constantly adjusting it. In the wilderness, you have to keep the dial of your heart tuned in with God's purposes. And it requires a lot of adjustment. Listen to his guidance. You to anticipate his protection. Because that's how God shepherds his people. Let's pray, shall we?
Father, we come before you this morning and we acknowledge that you are the God whose heart is kind beyond all measure and that you give unto each day what you deem best. Lord, we struggle to believe that. Lord, so many of these, these, these temptations that David faced are ones that we feel keenly. This temptation to um, what, what, what we long for the magic eight ball of your will. And we wonder about the timing of your providential provision for us, protection. We struggle. Lord, I know that some of the men and women in our church who are facing that particularly, they feel it keenly being in the wilderness. And I do pray that you would tune our hearts to your good work You accomplish in us what we could not imagine or believe and sometimes what we are slow to want. So I do pray that you would, as the disciples prayed, increase our faith. Grant us grace and peace, we pray, in the middle of the wilderness. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.